You know, he, he actually just spent a little time on vacation this week, and I kind of want to start out this talk this morning about a vacation that I had in uh, September of 2010. Um, I went to the mountains of the ranch that we have up there in Wyoming, and I'd, I'd gone uh, to do a little hunting, and so I'm on vacation. It's time to get away from work a little bit, a little R&R, and I got my, I got my bow in my hand, and I'm sitting there looking at these mountains, and there's a big, beautiful valley below me, and Pass Creek is running through there with trout in it. It's just a beautiful place, and I'm just, I'm relaxing. It's, it's a great thing. And uh, as I'm sitting there, I've got some time to kill. I've, I've got a few hours before it gets darker and the animals start moving, so I'll pick up my little pocket Bible, and I'm thumbing through it, reading it a little bit, and, and I begin praying. I just start praying, thanking God for all that he's done and worshiping, and then he reminds me of a young lady that was in our church that was recently diagnosed with cancer. And uh, we had been praying for her for, for probably a month, six, eight weeks, I don't know, maybe two months, uh, constantly just praying for this young lady who had cancer. Her name was Nicole, a young lady, and uh, the doctors didn't give her a whole lot of hope. Um, and so I, I, we've, we've been praying, and I was praying. So the Lord says, I want you to pray for her. So I'm sitting there looking in the mountains of what a great place, the presence of God. So I began praying for Nicole. And I was like, okay, Lord. And I, I give my 15, 30-second prayer for her, and I close my eyes and say, amen. And I start looking back at the mountains. I'm on vacation, Lord, you know. And then the Lord tells me again. He goes, I want you to pray for Nicole. So, okay. So I, now I go from 30 seconds to about a two-minute prayer. Surely this is enough. God will leave me alone. I get back to my vacation. So I pray my two-minute prayer. Open my eyes, I'm looking back at the mountains again, I'm on vacation again, and the Lord's like, I want you to pray for Nicole. Okay, so I pray again, so I start praying again, and and then I never felt this release, and I was like, Lord, I'm praying for her. He said, you don't understand. I want you to pray for Nicole, because I'm going to heal her. And I want to finish up that story in a minute as we get get to that, but I want to talk to you about some men today who... Uh, had had an encounter with a mighty God, and in Acts chapter 3, they, they healed a, a lame beggar. Um, and so we're going to pick up, though, in chapter 4 of Acts, and this is Peter and John, they're before the council, beginning in verse 1. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priest, the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching um, that uh, teaching people that through Jesus there is resurrection of the dead. They arrested them, and since it was already evening, they put them in jail until morning. But many of the people who had heard the message believed it, so that the number of believers now totaled about 5,000 men, not counting women and children. The next day of the council, all of the rulers of the elders and the teachers of religious laws met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest. They brought in the two disciples and demanded, By what power or in whose name have you done this? Then Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of our people, Are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he has been healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene. The man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, 
For Jesus is the one referred to in scriptures where it says, the stone that you, the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which man must be saved. The members of the council were amazed when they saw saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. And you know, I said this morning that it is okay for you to be ordinary if you serve an extraordinary God. So I want to reflect a little bit on the disciples and all that's happened so far. It wasn't long ago that these disciples were all running away when Jesus was being arrested. It wasn't long ago that Peter was standing near a fire denying that he knew Christ. It hadn't been long since the disciples actually witnessed Jesus dying on the cross. So here are these disciples. They're, they're scared. They're confused. They expected a king to rescue them. They don't know what's going on. And now they're actually hiding, fearing that they're going to have their lives taken from them as well. They didn't sound very extraordinary, did they? The question today, what moved them from ordinary men who were willing to run when things got tough to all of a sudden men who would stand before the Sanhedrin, the council, and boldly claim the gospel of Jesus Christ? The answer, these men had encountered a risen Savior, and his name was Jesus Christ. Throughout scriptures, we read where many had encounters with an extraordinary God. In Genesis 23, Abraham and Isaac encountered God on Mount Moriah. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses talked with God as he appeared to him in a burning bush. Uh, God met with Ezekiel while he was in captivity in Babylon. Uh, God met prophets like Isaiah uh, and Amos and other minor prophets while they were tending to their flocks in the midst of sheep in, with their sheep. Elijah encountered God while he was hiding in a cave from a woman, scared of a woman. God met him there. <laughs> Daniel encountered God in a midst of a, a den of hungry lions. Jonah met with God in the belly of a huge fish. Zechariah encountered God in the sanctuary near, near the altar of incense. Habakkuk encountered God while he was praying and interceding for Judah. Paul and Silas, who were imprisoned and beaten, worshiping God, they had a great encounter with God. Job, a man who faced all kinds of trials and sufferings, who had lost everything, had an encounter with God. God appeared to Solomon at Gibeon in a dream. Uh, Gideon encountered God when he had to face a great army of Midianites, and there was only a few of them he had this encounter. And just as I mentioned earlier to you, I had an encounter with God while on a hunting trip. So what's the point of this? It doesn't matter if you're at work. It doesn't matter if you're hiding in a cave or you're asleep in your bed. It doesn't matter if you're on vacation. You can still have an encounter with a mighty God. So how do I uh, encounter this extraordinary God? Is it even possible? Does God even do the impossible anymore? Can he or will he even do mighty acts that we read about here in Acts chapter 3 where Paul healed the, the beggar? Hebrews 13, 8 tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. Malachi 3, 6 tells us that I am God and I do not change. John 14, 12, Jesus says that 
these works, you're going to do greater works than these. So this is the God we're talking about. An extraordinary, all-powerful, mighty God that doesn't change. The question is not really, can God do the impossible? What is it going to take for us to see it? We see that Peter and John had experienced this great power in the book of Acts. But had the disciples always been able to heal or do these mighty works? I have to back up into Matthew chapter 17, verse 14 through 21. It tells us, when they came to the, uh, to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son. He said, he has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. These are the same dudes. Now, remember that in Acts 3, they healed a beggar. Well, right here, they can't heal him. Jesus says, you unbelieving and perverse generation. He replied, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed at that very moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, like the song we were just singing a minute ago, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So what's the problem here? Same guys, just heal the beggar here in Acts, but in Matthew 17, there was an issue. There was a heart issue with them. The problem was, is that the, it's found in verse 17. He's called them faithless and perverse or crooked or twisted. These disciples at the time had divided hearts. Their faith had not been fully developed. God didn't need to change his ways. The ordinary men needed to change. In Acts chapter 3, we back up to the story and I want to read it to you. So one day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he put every, was put every day to beg for those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter and asked them for money, Peter looked straight at him and so did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. Take him by the right hand. He helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he sent with them, sent with them to the temple courts. He went with them to the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. What happened to make this change? But from Matthew 17 to Acts chapter 3. How did these ordinary men all of a sudden have this ability to heal uh, this beggar? In Acts chapter 1, the disciples were commanded by Jesus to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And I know we've been covering Acts. And in Acts 2, as Matt preached about here a few weeks ago, we see that the Holy Spirit showed up. And when the Holy Spirit showed up, this group of people in the upper room had an encounter with a mighty God. Peter went on to preach and 3,000 were saved. Can you imagine 3,000 people being saved? That was what was a result of the power of the Holy Spirit. Not just an ordinary power, but an extraordinary power. Power that moves you beyond the realm of, poss of all possibilities. 
What did the disciples do in order for the power and presence of an extraordinary God to show up? They simply obeyed Jesus. They waited. As they waited, the Lord drew them close to each other. They drew, he drew them close to him. He brought unity. So what does it require for us to be united with the Holy God? We have to back up to the very beginning in Genesis. God is walking and talking with Adam and Eve in the garden, having fellowship with them. There was unity, but there was something that happened. And I'll read to you Genesis 3, 9. It tells us, and God said, where are you? They had hid themselves from this extraordinary, mighty, powerful God that just wanted fellowship with them because they had sinned. We need to understand today that sin separates us from God. It divides. It breaks harmony and fellowship with God. Now, I'm not telling you today that if you sin, all of a sudden God's just going to cast you aside and reject you. If you're a believer, you're saved by grace. But it does affect your relationship with God. Ephesians 2.8 tells us, As believers, we are saved by grace through faith, and it is not from ourselves. It is a gift from God. I believe this morning that it's possible and it's actually a reality for you as a believer to walk and live under grace, a saved believer, and still not walk in the fullness of God's power. Hear what I'm telling you this morning. It is possible for you to be saved, have your ticket, but still not experience what it's like to walk in that extraordinary power of God. It happened to the disciples, as we read in Matthew 17, but also, but in Acts, they were full of the Holy Spirit and things happened. Things changed. Jeremiah 32, 39 tells us, I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me and that they all will go well with them and for their children and their children's children. In Matthew 17, the disciples had a divided heart at this point. Their faith wasn't fully developed. So we'll go back here to James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10 tells us, but he gives us more grace. Aren't you thankful for the grace of God? That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but he gives favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and well. Change your laughter from to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. James also says in chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, But when you ask, you must not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. Those who doubt should not think they will receive anything from the Lord. They are double-minded and unstable in all they do. You need to understand something. The writer here, James, is not condemning us for doubting. As believers, there are points and periods of our walk with the Lord where we doubt and question God. We doubt and question our relationship with Him. We question a lot of things. There's just doubt that happens to us. It's part of our flesh. But it goes deeper than that. The kind of doubt that James is describing is a state of not having consistency. Constantly changing depending on the circumstances. Whatever the circumstances are would affect them. And that's what he's talking about here. Uh, our hearts are divided at times. We desire God in our lives. We want Jesus to be 
Savior, we want that grace, but we're not always willing for Him to be the Lord of our lives. Zach Williams, he sings a song. He says, I'm not only getting out of Egypt, Egypt is getting out of me. I think that's very profound. I want you to understand this morning that God's power cannot fully operate or fully manifest itself in a church or a home or an individual's life if there's a heart in you. If you are uncommitted or you have carnal, your flesh is there, there's sin in a way. Matt mentioned this last week. We have so many idols, so many things in our lives that are more important than God. Yes, we want to be saved, but we live so below the potential that could be found in the body of Christ. We see it in Acts. Has God changed? No, God hasn't changed. We change. We, we harden our hearts and we resist the Holy Spirit. Can God still heal the sick? Can he still heal, deliver the captive? Can he break chains of those who are in bondage? Is there hope for you and me in, this, in sweet water for all the circumstances that are going on? I believe that he can and I believe that he will. If his people will seek him. If his people will turn to him. If his people will confess their sin and their idolatry and their divided hearts. I believe this is something that God desires from us. An undivided heart. James chapter 5 verses 13 through 18 says, Is any among you in trouble? How many of you know people in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of joy. Is anyone among you sick? We have sick people, don't we? We know a lot of sick people. This last two weeks, I've had more text and more phone calls from people to pray for them. People in ICUs. People uh, sick. I've had people call me struggling with uh, marital problems, financial issues. Thing after thing, the Lord has just keep placing in my life. And he's doing this to show me something. There is great need in our lives. Great need for the people around us. And they need to see people who have been in the presence of a mighty God. And I'll read on here. It says, those who are sick, let them call on the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with the oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer offered in faith. Remember what Jesus told the disciples in 17, you had little faith. So it says here, the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous Man or woman, a prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah, the word tells us here, was a human being and he prayed that it wouldn't rain. And for three and a half years, it didn't. But then when he prayed again, it did rain. An ordinary man, Elijah was, but yet God used him in an extraordinary way. What will it take for you this morning to be known as someone that people would say, I know they've been with Jesus. I want to finish my story, go back to the mountains on vacation. The Lord told me, Richard, you're going to go pray for her. I'm like, okay, when I, I'll be home, I'll be home, I'll, the plane lands on Saturday, I'll go to her house and I'll pray for her. No, you'll pray for her when I tell you to pray for her. Okay. But I want you to go and tell her that I'm going to heal her. Guys, I don't know about you, but I'll be honest with you. When you have to go to somebody that has a cancer that's terminal, 
and say, I know God's going to heal you, it requires faith. But I did exactly what I, t- I was told. Because I had an encounter with him on the mountains. And I sensed the presence of God. And when, I, and when that happened, I wept. I wept in the presence of God because I knew that his spirit had ministered to me. And when I got off the plane, Vicky picks me up. And I'm crying like a baby. Was your hunt that bad? I had an encounter with God. And so I go to this young lady and I say, Nicole, God is going to heal you. And he told me to pray for you. She goes, let's go. Pray right now. I said, no, he told me I have to wait. He told me I had to wait. She goes, what do you mean? I don't know yet. I'll pray for you when he tells me to. What had taken place now over the next two or three weeks was God began changing me. The same thing that had to happen in the disciples' life. I had a faith problem. I believe God, but I didn't really believe. You're really going to heal her? I had a sin issue. I had idols in my life. I worshipped other things. I let other things be more important. The praise of man, the praise of my boss, or, or I put my marriage in front of God. There were many things that I had to confess. God had to prepare me to be a vessel in which he could move through. And it's the same thing that happened in Acts chapter 2. They had to wait for the Holy Spirit to show up. And during this time, they confessed their sins. They confessed their weaknesses. And they unified their hearts together. They unified their hearts together with God. And extraordinary, powerful things happened. So I kept saying, God, what are you doing? And he's, he's preparing me and he's, he's readying my heart for what he's going to do, this mighty work. He's already told me and I believe it, but help my unbelief. And so for two or three weeks, I just pray and I'm seeking God more than I ever have because now all of a sudden I may look like a fool to this young lady and I've given her hope. And so I'm praying earnestly and I'm seeking God more than any other time in my life. He says, now I want you to start fasting. So I start fasting, and I say, okay, God, how long? Uh, 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 lunch, supper? No, you keep fasting until I tell you. Don't stop till I tell you. I'll go, 40 days, oh no. Three days, 72, 72 hours, the Lord called me to a fast. So I fast, and at the end of that time, he released me. He says, now go and pray for her. And I go to meet her on Sunday, and I said, God told me he's gonna pray. I can pray for you today. She's all excited. She says, I have surgery in the morning. I lay my hands on this girl, and I'm telling you today, the power is not in me, guys. But because I had obeyed God, and He had stretched my faith, and I'd followed Him in obedience, and I had confessed, I had done the things that I needed to do, that He commanded me to do, when I laid my hands on this young lady, she was healed miraculously. The next morning, she goes in for surgery, And the doctor says, and she had a tumor that was bigger than a softball. And they told her, we're going to go in one more time and do one more scan right before surgery. They're prepping her for surgery. They go in and do the scan. The doctor comes out and says, I don't know what's going on, but there's no tumor here. God had done the impossible in that young lady's life. He healed her. She contacted me last year, so it's been about seven years, and she says, Richard, I just went to the doctor. I'm still free of cancer.
The power doesn't reside in me. And I didn't come here to tell you, if you're sick, I can lay hands on you, you're going to be recovered today. Because I want to tell you something, I'm in a process again of God purifying me and preparing me for what he has in store. That means confession. That means uh, humility. That means trust. That means obedience. God desired to heal her. He was willing and he was able. What he needed was for transformation to take place in my heart first so that he could use me. So I want to end this morning and conclude as the musicians, if they're back there, could come up. I want to end with these two words this morning. What if? I want you to think about that this morning. What if? What if this is the season that God decides He's going to save a bunch of teenagers and radically transform their lives, Ashley? Jerry, what if this is the year that this revival here in a few weeks, thousands of people get saved? Is God capable of that? Absolutely. What if this is the year that God, and this is the season where people are, are rescued from bondages and, and delivered from all kinds of addictions and, and things that are trapping their lives and, and discouraging them and bringing hopelessness in them? What if this is the year or the season that God decides or we get on board and He heals people in a mighty way? What if, what if this could be the time, just like in Acts chapter 2, people were saved and delivered and people were rescued and they boldly went out and prayed. They boldly went and shared Jesus Christ. What if? What stands in the way is not God's plan, but you, me. We live in an age of information. And my Sunday school class has heard this 155 times. This is 156. We live in an age of information. You can come in and out of these church doors and Matt preaches some awesome sermons. He can teach you the word. He knows the word of God. And you can get information every Sunday and Sunday night and in life group and in youth services over and over and over again. But God doesn't want you to just be informed. He wants you to be transformed. And He wants you to be transformed so that He can use you just like He did Peter and John to heal that beggar. So what if? What if? If you would bow your heads with me.